before I start my presentation, I've created this sort of glossary which acts as signposts to guide you through my presentation. I've also numbered each picture with a formula so that it makes it more actual. Okay. So to quickly explain each of them, number one, the one times one there, is me dozing off. It's a rather usual state. I'm in my 30s. I've got two kids. So it's a rather usual state for me. Then number two there is Francois psyched. It happens when I think I make some progress or when I get a good idea. Not such a usual state. Then Francois explaining, number three there, is for the ones that really take their CPD quite scientific. That's when you need to start your timer and end your timer. Okay? That's when the CPD happens. And then number four there is Francois perplexed. So that's a rather usual state trying to make sense of what's going on around me and happens a lot in meetings. Number five is the CFO of an insurer, thinking about SAM and thinking about further regulation. And then number six, lastly, is a regulatory consultant sue. So you have to stay until the end. And as you would have deducted by now, my presentation is not going to be technically heavy. So it acts as a warm-up for Susan's. Okay. Okay. Uh, in, the, in the coaching we were told we need to really get the audience going, so I, I made this crowd participation, but I wasn't, uh, I procrastinated, so I didn't get the clicky thing to work. So I've got three questions. It says that I've got two. The one is, uh, if you look at this picture, it looks like Batman. And uh, if it doesn't look to you yet, it will now. So that wasn't really a question, more a statement. The next one is, um... <laughs> okay, so the next one, quite serious. Have you been part of an also process in an insurance company? So please raise your hand if you have. It's about 75% of us. Well done. And then now, if you thought that the process was really, really useful and you thought the board found it useful and everyone involved in the process found it really useful, please raise your hand. Okay. See some consultants. That's good. Okay. So, to start the actual presentation. So, in my presentation, I'll look at business as usual, why I think it no longer exists. Uh, the also is the saving grace, so it's sort of the light at the end of the regulatory tunnel. Um, my abstract, when I was asked to do it, I said oh, we did some research. Uh, points four and five to talk to the research. So, it's what I see in the market and what, what I think we should be doing. Uh, and then, lastly, how to improve risk reporting. That's basically the presentation. So... So business as usual, a phrase made famous by Winston Churchill in, during World War I. Uh, nothing to do with the presentation, but it's defined as the unchanging state of affairs after a surprising event has taken place, or another definition is a rather quick reversion to normality following the surprising event. So deductively then, I think business unusual is the changing state of affairs after a surprising event has taken place with no reversion to normality. Why it no longer exists. Okay. I consider three factors for why business as usual no longer exists. The first one is interconnectedness and globalization. Now, the picture shows that you can make toast and coffee from the office using some smart devices, but that's got nothing to do with the presentation. It's just a picture. Okay. Um, we become financially interconnected through the asset and liability management strategies of our sovereigns, financial institutions, and other corporations. Now, financial markets have always been interconnected, but advances in technology and globalization have increased, have increased this complexity exponentially. 
It's obviously not all bad, as these connections have created unprecedented levels of efficiency, risk diversification options, options for distribution channels, and other advantages. But this increasing interconnectedness serves to continuously upset the landscape and changes our markets beyond recognition. In other words, not business as usual. The second fact factor is when politics and markets collide. So um, I think what we see is, is that everyone is kind of concerned about global economic growth, and that exacerbates political effects. So what we've seen in this year is that politics actively threaten the stability of the market and prevalent from not only the own goals scored locally, but also globalization having its effects. So the next, the next few factual news clippings... Not there yet. Um, yeah, it's from factual newspapers. Um, so the first... The next clippings show that political interference is here to stay and will ensure that we do not experience business as usual. So the first one is our presidency's HR issues, causing us some hassles. The next one is... Um, the NPA not leaving our finance minister alone. And the last one is all the way from the north, uh, Brexit having its effect on the RAND. Okay. The last factor I could think of is global regulation. So now given this much more complex environment from the, two, from the first two slides, there's little wonder that global regulators want to respond. So everyone in the room has certainly witnessed that increased regulation isn't just a temporary challenge, it is the new reality. The slide shows the UK being the innovator of regulation and then the first versions of these regulations being copied and pasted in South Africa, so under the umbrella of third country equivalence and best practice. And now, what happens now is that first I start thinking about it and being sort of quite perplexed about why we're doing all of this. And then uh, in my consultant role, I start thinking, well, this is an opportunity. And then I make some proposals and leave the insurance companies quite sad. So the next few slides have nothing to do with consulting, but why I think they're also really, really useful. Okay. So this slide shows the actual console, control cycle on the right. So we, we all should be vaguely familiar with that. Um, I think this has been ingrained in my memory because I wrote CA1 so many times. So whenever I think about presentations, um, walking the dog, taking out the trash, uh, driving to work, I always have a control cycle in my mind. So the also on the left is then depicted as the ultimate control cycle. Why? Because it's a process centered around whether the organization's risk management structures and own fund support the organization's strategy and risk profile. So we start out by defining the problem. Now, simply then, this is enabling everyone in the organization and the regulator to understand the organization's risk profile. Pretty simple. Designing a solution. So my solution is... is the solution I'm proposing is the change management required to effectively bring together all the relevant parts making up the workings of the organization. More, I'll, I'll discuss this in more slides later. Monitoring the results. So this is actually just enabling the board to make effective decisions, and it refers to effective reporting and governance, also part and parcel of the also process. Now, the last thing that you, that you need to know is, is taking account of the external environment. So because the also is forward-looking and takes, and, and, and takes into account your strategy and stress and scenario testing, it is naturally forward-looking. Okay. And there's also be a professional. That's also one I struggle with. Okay. That's not working. So what are we doing? This is the research referred to. So, again, some CPD here. So what we see in the market and when people talk about the also, they generally refer to this being a report. 
So what we already have in every organization is this massive array of reports being produced with everyone in the support function feeling the pinch close to quarter, month ends, half year ends, and year ends. So a common list of reports is shown on the slide. So this includes budgeting and planning reports, so usually up to two times per year, financial reports and statements, uh, sustainability reports, risk and solvency reports, compliance reports, departmental updates, secret strategy meetings from Exco, reserving reports, reports on reports, and many, many more. So on top of all of this, we now think, uh, we now think, just, just add an author report. Okay. And we usually give this task to some lonely soul, and for added measure, we just don't give him all the information. Okay. So that picture is not a dirty picture. It's me thinking, where's the framework? <laughs> okay, so what we should be doing. First, we realize what the author is. Now, this part I really have to read, and my wife said I should read it very slowly. So. She thinks, she thinks actuaries can't pick up. Okay, so I'm going to read it slowly. It's the entirety of the processes and procedures employed to identify, assess, monitor, manage, and report the short and long-term risks an insurance undertaking faces or may face and to determine the own funds necessary to ensure that the undertaking's overall solvency needs are met at all times. It's pretty simple. <laughs> it's pretty simple. So, as we kind of figured out long ago, If you kind of figure out long ago that we all need to be solvent and that insurance companies work different to other companies, I think we unconsciously started producing all these reports. So I think we end up, we, we have a good set of building blocks. Now we just need to sort of formalize the process. So what, what we have is what we have, we have is, is reports that covers what has happened. We have who did what. We, we have what is going to happen. So obviously some change management is required, and in no way I'm, I'm sort of stressing that that is a hell of a task that lies ahead, it's the change management. But we all just need to formalize this process and then tailoring them to the requirements set out in the relevant position papers. So position paper 107, version 6 to be exact. So, does, yeah, so it just changes that funny picture in the front to say equals an author report because that's actually just an author process. So the structure of the report. Now I know it's not a report, it's a process, but this is what the board actually sees. So there are various options for the structure of the author report and different reports may be produced for the board and the regulator. And this is actually from the FSB position paper 107, paragraph one, verse 838. So I'll read them. To ensure the board truly owns the author process and, and uses the report to inform the understanding of the business, brevity of the report is crucial. The following factors need to be considered. Boards do not like to see out-of-date information or information they have seen before. The report should be a highlights package from the collection of reports already being produced by the company. And on an annual basis, just to satisfy all the requirements, on an annual basis, a reference document could be produced that sets out all the author reports and maps these back to show compliance to the to all the author report requirements set out in position paper 107. So what I'm proposing is that the report be structured in the following way. The slide shows that it's, it's, it's split into static, static sections. So these are sections that never change. Consider your enterprise risk management framework, relevant policies, operating models, all of those interesting stuff. Now, these sections could be produced as an earlier document um, and signed off prior to the submission of the, of, of the actual report. Now, a static dynamic section so what I mean here is that these are sections that have a static placement in the author report, but the content is quite dynamic. So it sort of considers your retrospective results, your financials. And lastly, having a dynamic section. 
which looks at your strategy given your current operating environment. The dynamic section should be placed up front in the author report and be allocated the most attention. As, a, as board members then become more familiar with the author, the static sections will mainly serve the purpose of being a useful source of information for new board members and as a reference where needed for other board members. So if you do this well, I, I really think the following is possible. I think you can take the board from being bored to being engaged with regulation. Okay. Um, some further tips now from regulatory consultants too. We'll, we'll now follow, and I'll come come back in the end. Thanks. Not done. So Francois's not done. He's going to come back. Just okay. So um, okay. So so KPMG does benchmarking in the UK, in Canada, and Australia on ORSA reports, and we've replicated some of that benchmarking in South Africa. Now, we know the UK is quite similar to South Africa in terms of Solvency 2 and SAM, um, and SA is a few years behind the UK, but there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from the UK. So, some observations from our UK practice benchmarking, um, which I think we are already seeing some of these things come through in South Africa as we're in our second mark ORSA cycle. Okay, so UK companies are now in about their fourth or fifth cycle of ORSA. Okay, so um, a few of the early themes. Okay, so firstly, early reports tended to be quite long and static, and I think we've seen the same thing here. Um, early reports that have followed quite a template approach, I think have received quite good feedback from the FSB because they contain everything they need to. Um, but as we evolve and also becomes more useful, really a later development is that the, that report should become useful and more concise and focus on the board, uh, the board usefulness. Okay, so early themes, uh, lack of forward-looking analysis, and I think we've seen that here in South Africa as well. So, um, so the first ORSAs in South Africa, um, companies have just had to do a load of work just to actually meet the requirements. And to do forward-looking projections has also been quite a big task. Um, so a later development and, uh, in the UK, and I think at this stage we're in the second mark ORSA, I haven't really seen too many companies progress uh, much further than last year in terms of forward-looking projections, um, but a later development should be that ORSAs should become more forward-looking. Um, stress and scenario testing shouldn't be done on the back of, end of the ORSA, it should actually be an input to the ORSA, it should be used to set the risk appetite, and it should be used as... I think it should be done all the time, so at least quarterly, so you should always be asking what-if questions. Um, and the capital model should always be developing as well, so you should be improving your ORSA capital basis as you get more insights from your um, risk assessments and your capital assessments. Okay, so early theme, focusing on compliance, and I think we, we also here, we focused on compliance, um, which, is, which is quite a big task. Um, a later theme in the UK is that ORSA is still not used as a tool. Okay, so, and I have seen that here. So I've seen some ORSAs here that started as compliance and actually have made a massive leap forward in the second year. Um, that's where the focus has been very much on use, whereas some ORSAs that started off very well in terms of having all, the, all of the, the content, um, if they've kept that same sort of template approach and content approach, um, the second iteration really, we're not seeing that big move forward. And then just to note, 
um, a theme from the UK is that there was no one company that was a leader across ORSA in all of the, like, the assessment categories when we did benchmarking. Um, some were ahead in some areas and behind in other areas. Okay, and a later development in the UK is that companies are still struggling to align also with business as usual activities. And to Francois's um, picture earlier, um, really if you can align your ORSA to all of your business as usual and all of those reporting processes you already have in place and you embed your risk and capital, it becomes part of your business as usual, um, not a big annual process. Okay, so just on that theme of thoughts on ORSA end state, so here what we've got, I'm not sure if we borrow, borrowed it from our Canadian or, or our UK practice, but it shows um, an end state reporting calendar. Um, and actually, um, I know we have one client here who we shared this with and they've already sort of started to implement this and, and quite successfully. So if you think of your ORSA end state and you should be thinking about it as embedded into all of your business as usual reporting, um, your business planning and strategy, you would do that once a year but you would be monitoring quarterly. So really those reprojections I think you should be doing at least quarterly is re-looking at what's the forecast. Risk and management capital processes happen continuously. Your risk strategy and appetite you would set annually, um, but you would monitor in that quarterly process. And then material risk assessment, the forecasting economic capital and risk assessment, really putting those into a quarterly process. And if you do have a risk committee that is um, happening quarterly, then that does make sense. So you would report to your risk committee quarterly. And then the reporting, you've got all the regulatory reporting that you know that you have to do. You have to do your QRTs. You have to do your annual ORSA report, so at least annually to the regulator. Um, but on this picture here, it shows a quarterly ORSA light. Um, which is actually quite a nice, I think, concept. And then you've got your committees, your governance, and then independent review and challenge. Okay, so just some th uh, further thoughts on OISA end state um, around the documentation. So good reports and just some thoughts on that. So good reports include a clear summary. Um, they highlight the main messages and issues. They're not too long, okay, so I've been reading some that are 100 pages, 100 and sorry, 150 pages, and that's quite a long read. Um, and it's hard to actually really understand what are the key messages coming out of that, what are the important things. Um, so not too long, and clearly signpost supporting documentation. And I think I think some of these themes actually came from the UK regulator when he was talking to the UK industry about what makes a good ORSA report. So just thinking about that report is actually a board report, and second, secondarily, it needs to meet all those, all those compliance requirements. Okay, so on, on reporting and monitoring. <clears throat> so we know in this mock ORSA cycle, we do need to implement MI, Economic Capital and Risk MI. So that really is your reporting and monitoring. Um, so you should have continuous monitoring, and quarterly at least. So I do think um, you, do it, you do need to uh, eventually get to a continuous monitoring. Um, I worked in the UK at Aviva, and at the, the point where we had the, the concern around the pigs countries and um, sovereign debt default, we actually had to monitor and report to the regulator weekly on our economic capital position. So. You know, so you need, you need proxy models and methods to do that, but you actually need to understand your position at any point in time. Um, an idea here is around risk dashboard reporting. So, for example, you have all of your risks and you define your key risk indicators, and you can do that through, through dashboards. 
And then also considering the trigger points for when you would refresh the ORSA ahead of the usual cycle. So Francois is talking about business unusual and, and really there's so many things going on. At this point, um, we need to have in our policies what would trigger an out-of-cycle ORSA. Okay, we don't actually have to do out-of-cycle ORSAs yet. Um, but in the policies that I've seen, I think either um, there's, too many, there's too many things that would trigger it or not enough. So we need to put a lot more thought around what would those trigger points be. And once you define those trigger points, how are you actually going to monitor those trigger points? So how do you know when that trigger has happened? And then once that trigger has happened, do you actually have the capability to produce that out of cycle or so? Okay, and some ideas on board. Um, board involvement and your senior management involvement. So that is a big theme also for our mock ORSA cycle. Um, not fully. Next year, the board and senior management do have to sign off on the ORSA and the methodology and assumptions. Um, you should have a separate board risk committee with an appropriate mandate. And because we have BN158 here, so all of our companies should have separate risk committees. The executive risk committee, so you need to make sure that there's enough focus and attention at those executive committees to focus on risk and improved board and senior management engagement. And so really you need to think through quite carefully your training and your scheduling um, to engage the board and senior, senior management. Okay, so those are the thoughts on ORSA end state. And I will hand back to Francois now. Okay, so this is my, what I imagine my in other words, my I have a dream moment. Not quite as passionate as Martin Luther King. But yeah, getting there. First one is the news clippings we'll see from the future. I know I know he's not here with us anymore, but uh, Apple Corporation saying, yeah, it was all because of a great also process. Okay. The next one is Mr. Donald Trump saying his campaign was centered around having a good also process and lies and all of that, but first and foremost, having a good also process. And the last one is Hillary finally confessing that their also process sucked. Okay. Concluding remarks for myself. There's no such thing as business as usual. 2016 can be used as evidence. All this regulation gave birth to something really, really useful. It's called the also. And then an office joke, which I didn't want to put in, but I'll have. So the also is quite awesome. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, is this yeah working? Okay, thanks. We've got ten minutes for questions. There must have uh, must be lots of also questions for Susan and Francois. Can I see um, some hands? And we'll get a microphone to you. No. An outbreak of post-lunch shyness. Okay, well, let me, while you think of a question, I'm not sure who this is to, Susan, um, but as you were talking, I think what I would find really useful is if someone like yourselves or one of your competitors could do a, a board survey of how the boards found the ORSA, and maybe depending on whether that board member is an actuary or a financial person or a non-financial person, it might be quite interesting to get it independently from the FSB doing it, which obviously... The boards are all going to say, you know, it's wonderful, fantastic, we're hugely engaged, and it's a really great process. It would be really nice to understand what the sort of the, 
you know, the level of comfort with board members out there around the Orsa. So I don't know if, some, if you've seen that already or you've done something like that. I haven't. Uh, Andy, thanks, Andy. So, so I haven't actually seen that and I haven't seen um, anyone start doing that. But, uh, I mean, I think that is a really good idea. I mean, I've seen kind of different levels of engagement um, with the board where actually I've, I've seen, I've seen a, a kind of switch. So, so where the board all, like starts with they have to do this and it's a bit of a grudge and, and it's an annual process and it's an absolute pain to do it. Um, but when they start understanding, well, this is our regulatory capital and it helps us improve the, the risk environment, um, they actually start becoming more engaged. I think, I think the, um, the, the other thing that I've seen is, um, so a company that I'm working with at the moment, so where the board probably didn't get too involved in, in risk and, and kind of in those areas, um, the organization almost scared the board in terms of these are your, this is what you're actually responsible for under Sam and Orsa. And now the board really is incredibly intrusive and in asking absolutely everything. So, so, yeah, so I think it's, you know, to get that right balance is yeah. going to take some time. I mean, is there a danger that, um, that you, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of different boards in South Africa, not through my current employer, but through my previous one. Um, where there's very varied skill levels on the board. And the danger, I would have thought, is that you just have um, board members saying, well, there's an actuarial person on the board. They're the ones that need to get close to this. I'll just kind of ignore it. I yeah. mean, is there a risk of that happening? Yeah, I think, I think there is a risk of that. And I think, I mean, to Francois' point where he said the ORSA report, and, and when you think about in the organization, who is the right person to do the ORSA report? So it is actually, it's reporting. And it's regulatory, but it's also board reporting. And, and the ability to actually give the right level of information to the board to enable them to do what they need to do is, is very, very difficult. Because you can give them way too much detail. So if you do have the very, very technical person that wants to explain every technical detail, the board is just going to get completely lost. Versus if it's just too high level, they can't really, they can't really challenge, challenge it and, and do what they're meant to do. I mean, I, I had a, an interesting comment from a board member who, um, who said that if you give the board too much information and it's too detailed and too theoretical, what they might, what the board would default to is actually going through documents and start kind of checking the wording and, you know, they, they kind of lose the, the focus that you want them to have, which is really on the risk and the risk environment. Okay, thanks for that. Um, have you, there's a question at the back on the, my right. Uh, good afternoon, it's, it's Colin Dudkovich here. Um, I've been playing around in the UK for a couple of years um, and uh, some conversations we've had recently with CFOs and chief actuaries at um, the big UK uh, insurers. Uh, we went to them over the last couple of months and we said to them, uh, what's the biggest impact of Solvency 2? Uh, and they all sort of said, well, from a capital point of view, it hasn't made much difference. Uh, there's some issues with annuities and risk margins, blah, blah, blah. Um, but they, they uniformly have said that the ORSA and their communication with the board through the ORSA has been the single, single biggest uh, benefit from the whole of, of Solvency II implementation, um, which you'd think is quite entertaining given they spent three billion pounds implementing Solvency II. Um, and all they get out of it is a document you send to your board. Um, but it, but it's, that's uniform, and that's, uh, that's from conversations with the, with the biggest UK uh, insurance companies. Um, and then uh, 
so you know, it, it, it is working in that context. Um, they have a uniform way of, uh, of talking about things so that if they have a, a non-executive board member, he leaves one company, he becomes the non-exec on a different company, he almost has the same sort of report coming along, the same structure, the same information. So it becomes much easier for a non-executive director to be expert in what he's looking at, um, which, is, which is useful. Um, and, and the other big use that we've seen with it is um, on, on uh, structuring capital transactions uh, and doing uh, M&A stuff. Uh, sort of, you know, how do you start the process? Will you get the companies also? Uh, and everything you need is in there to really look at a great depth into the organization and how it works and, and what its issues are and what its risks are. Um, so if you think about that as facilitating efficient company capital management and transactions uh, as being big for, good for the company and good for the industry, um, then it's had a tremendous benefit on that side as well, that, that people can get at information very, very quickly. Um, and, and the last little anecdotal piece of information about you know, having this as, as uh, working in the organization, uh, the one big UK insurer, they started putting a little decal on the bottom corner of a report if that report was going to be part of their also or inform part of their also. Uh, so at the end of the day, once they'd done that, any document or any report that didn't have that decal on, they just threw out. They said, well, if it's not useful for the also process, then it's not useful for stopping and threw it out. And any, any report that did have that decal on, okay, you've changed the structure of it, you've changed the format, so that it, it, is just, it does just become your also. So they, that's how they sort of, yeah, they, they were trying to force the also as to be a tool that gets used was part of the objective of this. But it, it worked very effectively just forcing it in such a sort of simple sort of way. Um, so, so all in all, you know, the, the authors are very well respected across the, across the UK market. Uh, I know from the FSB uh, presentation a couple of days ago, they're slightly bit more skeptical of what they've seen here so far with some reports being four pages and some being 365. Uh, but uh, you know, the UK is maybe a year or two ahead in terms of actually having to physically do it given Solvency 2 being in place and, and Sam not quite being in place yet. Okay, thanks Colin. I'm not sure there was a question in there, but if there was one, Susan, do you want to? No, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't hear a question in there. Okay, good. But, uh, no, that, that's really, thank you. That's okay. really good insights. Okay, thanks. Yeah, thanks Colin. Okay, so I think that I'm mindful of time. So if you've got other questions on also, we'll hope we might get another chance to come back at the end. Um, but I think we should uh, move on to the next presentation. So 